Good evening and welcome to Navara Live. My name is Aaron Bastani. Tonight I'm joined by Ash Sarka. Ash, how are you? I'm good, Aaron. I also like your kind of, is this Navara Live? Is this live and kicking on a Saturday morning vibe you've got going on? Um, yeah, I'm, it's really perked me up. I'm, I'm going for the Rishi Sunak come children's TV presenter in the mid 1990s kind of vibe. <laughs> you know, it's a, he's made it a thing now. It's part of the zeitgeist to pretend you're Pat Sharp circa 19. 88. We have a great show tonight, after the moment that Monday gets the best stories, but I don't think that's the case this week. We'll be covering a four-day strike by junior doctors. A Times columnist lets the cat out of the bag regarding the culture war. The leader of Britain's top business lobbyist has been given the boot. And is Britain's economy really about to grow more slowly than Russia? First story. Junior doctors across England are on strike today. It's the first of four successive days of industrial action as the doctors walk out over pay, conditions, and patient safety. But it's also being billed as the most disruptive strike in the history of the NHS, with some 350,000 operations likely to be cancelled over the course of the week. Emma Runswick is Deputy Chair of the BMA Council. She told BBC Breakfast why the junior doctors are walking out. I think some of our viewers will, will hear the warnings about how disruptive the, the strike is going to be over the next four days and, and will be really worried about how they're going to cope and what the knock-ons might be for them and the, their families. What do you say to people who just think this, this isn't right to strike in this way and for this long? I'm, I'm always really sorry to hear stories about disruption. Um, but the, the key message really is that this strike was entirely avoidable and preventable. We have been asking Steve Barkley to put forward a credible offer for months and months and months. We even offered last week to suspend action, even at short notice, if uh, the Health Secretary was willing to put a credible offer on the table. And he has declined to do so. We've had no offer whatsoever. We're not included in the wider NHS offer. We've had absolutely nothing but more and more preconditions. At the last uh, set of industrial action, um, we maintained safe care, urgent, critical, maternity care, all maintained. We had regular meetings with NHS England. Um, I'm fairly confident that safety can be maintained through strike action by junior doctors, but it does cause disruption. It's not something any of us want. What we want is pay restoration so that we can reverse our workforce crisis and get back to giving patients the care that they really deserve. Now, over the last 13 years, junior doctors have seen their pay fall by a massive 26% in real terms. They're asking for their real pay to be restored to its levels in 2008. But Health Secretary Steve Barclay isn't prepared to negotiate. Brunswick gave the doctor's side of the argument, while the BBC seemed to give the government's. You say that he needs to come up with a credible offer. He says you need to come down from your, your demand of 35%. I mean, the ball is in your court as well here, isn't it? It's really not. We've been asking 35%? since... 35%? We've been asking since last August for a reversal of the real terms pay cuts that we've suffered since 2008. So we've lost 26.1% uh, since 2008. If you take £25 away from 100, that's £75, to get £25 back... That's a third of £25. So we're only asking for a reversal of pay cuts. We've had that position only. for... Only? 35% is we've not had really that only, position is it? For, We've had that position for a long time. Steve Barclay refused to discuss with us. We're happy to negotiate. This is not a, a situation where we are, you know, damn fixed in our position. We are looking for negotiations and Steve Barclay isn't, isn't willing to even talk to us. But you, so you haven't, though, said uh, we'll come down to... 
25% from 35% or something. That, that's, I think, the kind of thing that he might want to hear. Yeah, but we're not negotiating on, you know, live television or no, in no, the media. But it's even a, to him. Yeah, so, but he hasn't put any offer at all on the table, not a counter offer at all. So if, if we want to start a negotiation, there has to be two sides, two sides in the discussion. And we are the only side in the discussion at the moment. Do you see, though, for a patient, how this might be very, very frustrating? Because you have your line, um, Steve Barclay has his, his line, someone somewhere's got to give. Absolutely. And I mean, we're, we're, ha we're happy to be in negotiations. We've never set any preconditions what for negotiations. What would it take from him? What do you need to hear from him? A credible offer. And we wrote to him last week very, very clearly setting that out. He needs to make a credible offer. We would be in negotiations yesterday, last week, this week, during industrial action, before industrial action. We've been writing to him since August. So there's, there's, no, you know, there's no difficulty on our side entering into negotiations, it's the preconditions on Steve Barclay's side that are preventing that from happening. But he's kind of saying the same thing the other way around, isn't he? He's saying, you know, we're happy to, to talk, but they've got to come down from their 35%. Uh, and meanwhile, patients like patients we've heard in this morning who said that they've, they were in tears when they heard that they had a, 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 an operation cancelled, just really, really frustrated. Can, can you not both Sides just at least get in the room together. So we're not the side with the with the power here to start negotiations. We've been asking for literally months um, before we even balloted for industrial action. We then warned in January when we started balloting for industrial action. At any point, Steve Barclay could have entered negotiations with us. When we met after the last round of industrial action, he literally walked out of the room having put nothing on the table. So, you know, People might say, try and say, you know, both sides need to move here, but we've done everything that we possibly can do. It's his choice not to talk to us. So what about all those cancelled operations? That was a topic that came up when Sky's Kay Burley interviewed Sumi Manarajan from the BMA. She painted a bleak picture on the level of care the NHS is currently able to offer. What we're seeing in the NHS at the moment, when you look at this through the state that the NHS is, is in at the moment, we've got 7.2 million patients on waiting lists. This is more than we have people living in Scotland. We aren't operating. The, the government isn't operating a health service. They're operating a waiting list. And we've got 500 patients dying needlessly every week. We can't solve this without doctors. 7.2 million? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you're adding another 350,000 over the next four days? So w there will be patients that have their appointments and uh, operations cancelled. The reason for this is because the government won't negotiate with us. They haven't given us an opening offer. And without an opening offer, there's nothing to negotiate. We're open to creative ways in how we can restore the pay of our junior doctors. But we need to appreciate that we are 9,000 doctors now. And with millions on the waiting list, we can't bring this number down without doctors. And patients know this as well. Patients are appreciating that... The, the reason they can't see their GP, the reason they can't see a hospital specialist is because there aren't any and the public do support us. Is being a doctor not a vocation? It, it is a vocation, but of course, if we've got to the point where the workforce is in crisis, where we can't give the level of care that we want to give patients and doctors are leaving to go to Australia, New Zealand or Canada, we need to do something about this. This is ultimately so we can provide the care that we want to. Now, Manny Rajan talked there about the exodus of junior doctors, as well as other NHS staff, to Australia and New Zealand, where pay and conditions are much better. In January, the Times put some figures to that claim, reporting this. 
Last year, 6,950 UK doctors applied for a certificate to work abroad, up from 5,576 in 2021, with many feeling pushed out by poor pay and working conditions. One in four go to Australia, where hospitals and healthcare providers have launched recruitment campaigns targeting NHS doctors, nurses, and midwives. The BMA has claimed that one in three junior doctors plan to move abroad in the next year. One in three. So 6,950 doctors tried to leave in 2022, with 5,576 aiming to go the year before in 2021. That's more than a 20% increase in those looking to leave the NHS in just one year. Still, rather than take the crisis in the health service seriously, some journalists prefer to quibble over the way the BMA arrived at its figure of a 26% real terms pay cut since 2008. That's the really big story after all. Sky News interviewed the BMA's Arjan Singh. They asked him this. The BMA has used the retail price index um, to measure inflation, but the consumer price index is what is normally used uh, when it comes to measuring uh, inflation for pay negotiations, which would mean that junior doctors' pay has fallen by 16%, which is, is far less than the 26% that the BMA is saying. Would it not make more sense to have a more realistic demand? So we use RPI, and RPI is actually used for student loans, which junior doctors, as I've said, have, you know, in excess of £100,000. It's also the best measure for housing costs, which is something junior doctors struggle with the most. And the question of, is it realistic? Well, the total cost of restoring our pay is £1 billion, yet £37 billion was spent on a disastrous track and trace system, four billion on PP that never saw the light of day, and three billion is spent on agency staff in the NHS, a demand that is only so high because we can't retain doctors and, and staff to work on a full-time NHS contract. So the question is, it's not, is it realistic to pay junior doctors? Can we have this, is the money there? The money's there. The real question that we should ask is, is it realistic to expect a first-class healthcare service if, you have, if you're going to continuously and vociferously cut the wages of doctors working in that system, the answer is no. And that's the real point. How you measure the rate of cuts is much less important to the survival of the NHS than the fact that they're happening. And even if you take the CPI as the relevant measure of inflation, the doctors would still need around about a 20% pay rise to achieve pay restoration. So what is Health Secretary Steve Barclay doing about all of this? Well... A lot of regretting. He told Sky News this. I deeply regret these strikes and in particular the timing, which have been timed uh, deliberately coming straight after Easter. The fact that the BMA junior doctors have asked their members not to tell NHS managers whether they intended to, to go on strike or not, making contingency planning more difficult. And also their refusal to agree any national exemptions. Other health unions like the Royal College of Nurses agreed national exemptions, particularly for example, for cancer patients, uh, so that those patients weren't impacted. The Junior Doctors Committee has refused any national exemptions, and obviously that puts uh, patients at greater risk. But we're working very hard to mitigate those impacts. Uh, I had a call again 
with NHS England uh, uh, yesterday, looking at the contingency measures in place. And I want to thank people across the NHS, particularly the consultants, the nurses, the many staff who are working today uh, to mitigate the impacts of the strikes. What reassurance can you give to hundreds of thousands of people who are affected by this, who will be very worried about their health? Can you give them a reassurance that you are putting every effort possible into resolving uh, this situation and, and trying to get around the table and, and having you talk with the junior doctors? Well, a huge amount of effort is going in to mitigate the impact of the strikes, to ensure that emergency cover is there. The clear message to the public is for those who need the NHS, the NHS will be there in terms of responding to, to urgent calls, but to be mindful of the demands that they place uh, on the NHS. But a huge amount of effort has gone into the contingency plan, uh, the measures in place given the effects of the strikes, but clearly there have been time to have an impact uh, on patients, and I think that's very regrettable. It's worth pointing out that one of Rishi Sunak's five pledges was bringing down NHS waiting lists. So maybe someone should be pointing out to Steve Barclay that this clearly isn't the way to do it. It's not easy being the representative for a trade union or a professional association going up on the media on a strike day. I would say that is one of the toughest things you can do if you are doing a media round because you know that those questions are going to be pretty hostile. They're going to have adopted the government and the right-wing papers framing to a significant degree. So being able to keep your composure and not only that, very calmly explain your position and in some cases explain why the premise of the question is wrong is really, really difficult stuff. Right. That is absolutely not primary school media round. All right. This is as difficult as it gets, really. So I think that they were all incredibly impressive. And one of the things that really struck me, particularly on the question of pay restoration, is when you talk about a 35% pay restoration. Of course, that sounds really incredibly expensive. It's a number when I first heard it, I was a bit taken aback and I was going, ooh. Can the Treasury really afford this? And then when you put that in the context of how much money was wasted on a test and trace system, which was put in the hands of you know, the likes of Deloitte, when you look at the amount of money which has been extracted from the public sector in the form of privatization, you then realize, well, the money is there. It's just something which has gone into private hands. And that's been the story of austerity and of privatization. So that was one of the things that I took away from those media rounds. And I'm somebody who is really quite supportive of the doctor's strike. I do think that one of the really difficult questions for doctors to answer is this question of disruption and indeed possible uh, negative healthcare outcomes on patients. And you can see why it's a really difficult question to answer because you have to constantly present yourself as being on the side of the public. And I think that they do make that case very well when they talk about the impact of staffing shortages and austerity on excess deaths, you know, seeing over 500 patients um, dying needlessly because of a lack of staff. And having seen, you know, with each winter crisis coming around, that 
beds uh, shortage is getting worse to the point that in the 2019 general election, you saw babies having to, you know, be placed on coats because there wasn't any available space for them. Um, that is the nature of the safety crisis in the NHS. And it's something which is wholly government made. But I think there is a point to be made here about strike action, which is it is meant to be disruptive. You are meant to see the impact that it has on all of us and not just the government and not just the economy when you withdraw your labor. Now, I think that that's something which, if you're a doctor, is really difficult. It is not a decision that anyone who works in healthcare takes lightly. It's not something which they, you know, kind of go skipping through the meadows going, tra la 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 la, someone's had their operation cancelled. But I think that it's a point that's worth making, particularly to our audience, which is, yeah, it's really frightening to see the impact on people's health that four days of strike action has. And I also do agree that that's nothing in comparison to the day-to-day level of um, you know, patient endangerment that comes with staffing shortages. But the difficult truth is, is that actually that disruption, that fear for patients is the leverage that the doctors have. And I think the more we make the point that that is something to be put on the government. That's not something which is created by the doctors. That's something that they've been forced into doing because their work, their labor has been devalued so much. I think it's something that those of us speaking to more progressive and left-wing audiences should say, which is, yes, it is scary. Yes, it does have an impact on patients' health, but that's the point. That's the leverage. There's a few points there. So the first one is, in response to everything you just said there, Ash, there are some people on the right who say, well, nurses and doctors shouldn't have the right to strike. Well, we're 46,000 nurses short already. I just said a moment ago about one in three junior doctors looking to go overseas. Removing the right to strike probably isn't a good idea if you have recruitment problems already. And then and then secondly, Ash, I mean, I, I just put some specifics on what you said there. We covered this a while back. You're looking at around 500 excess deaths a week. That's that, that's death that shouldn't be happening or deaths above the expected kind of normal um, because of any waiting times, people waiting longer than they should in accident emergency. So obviously over a year, you're looking around 25,000 deaths. Huge, huge numbers are dying and suffering because of the status quo. But I guess like you say, Ash, it's very difficult to convey the totality of a failing NHS. We're talking about a system which provides public health care for 65 million people, when often the electorate people relate these things through anecdotes or the local GP practice or a bad news story that's, you know, highly emotive in the media. However, Ash, however, all is not lost. I want to move on to the public perception of the strikes because it's quite positive for strikers, that is. Obviously, the government will be hoping that the longer they hold out on negotiations, the more that public support for the strikes will begin to fade. But at the moment, that doesn't seem to be happening. This is a new poll from Ipsos. As you can see, nurses, ambulance workers, and junior doctors right there at the top. And if you're just looking at the colors, it's really important to emphasize that um, that color there, I don't know what you call it, sort of blue, green, there is a word for it. Politicians love it because it's kind of, you know, it's neither it's neither uh, blue nor red nor green. Um, that's strongly slash tend to support. Gray, neither support nor oppose. So that's right in the middle, right? So nurses, basically three to one 
support to not support. Ambulance workers, again, almost three to one. Junior doctors, significantly over two to one support. Have to say, I feel a bit sorry for driving examiners right at the bottom there. People not really on side with them, but that's a story for another day. It's not just the general public who support the doctors. Patients are showing enormous understanding too, as that polling uh, indicates. David Bell has been waiting to have a precancerous tumour removed. He spoke to Radio 4's PM and told them this. It's an anxious time anyway. Um, there's been you know, a few months of kind of tests and scans leading up to this point. So that's all been very anxious. And so it's one of those things you don't ever want to happen, but equally you don't want it to be delayed either. So um, it's been a very, been a very difficult time. I wonder if anyone's told you what you know whether this affects the risk factor of, of not having the procedure when you were meant to have the procedure. No one has told me that directly, but I can only presume because I was um, being treated as a priority patient that obviously they you know they, they want to get they want to move on this as quickly as possible. So obviously, um, the longer the longer I wait, and obviously being in a situation where something is um, you know, precancerous, obviously you don't want to lose that pre. So mm-hmm. um, in a sense yes it is it, it is um i guess there, there, there is a risk so the junior doctors are asking for a 35 percent pay rise the health secretary says i'm not even coming to the table unless you're more realistic where do your sympathies lie in all of this my 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 view is very much in support of the junior doctors um the 35 percent which is a this headline figure that's been bandied around by the secretary of state is very much you know it's a pay restoration, not a pay rise when um, when you actually look at the figures. Now, what the junior doctors are saying is that's a starting point. They want to sit down. They um, have been you know, begging the Secretary of State over the um, last week to come and sit at the table and talk about this. To me, as a patient, I feel very passionately that if it really matters and patients are as important as um, the Secretary of State and the government claim, then why are they not? Why is he not willing to sit? through the night around a table and come to some agreement myself and many many other people's lives are at stake here people are anxious people are concerned agree something at some point a deal is going to have to be done we are losing so many of our doctors overseas at the moment so many of them are moving for better paying conditions stop this because this is short-termism and at the end of the day if something's done now we can actually start improving the NHS Ash, important words there, short-termism. I mean, that sort of that sort of monologue being on BBC Radio 4, I mean, that, that means something quite significant. Millions of people, middle Britain, hears that, and it penetrates through a lot of the, the government's spin, doesn't it? What that monologue, as you called it very effectively, does is that it directs the blame, the blame exactly where it should go, which is, yes, if you've had an operation or an examination or a test cancelled, an appointment cancelled, it is frightening. You're worried about your health. You're worried about what's going to happen next. You're worried about whether your condition is going to deteriorate. And if it's one of, you know, your family members or a loved one who's in need of care, you're worried for them and their well-being. But it's not because the junior doctors take patient well-being lightly that any of this is happening. 
The junior doctors, in fact, are seeing on a day-to-day basis the way in which patient safety is recklessly endangered by a government which has no real sense of what it's going to take to keep staff at safing levers, which has systematically cut capacity in the NHS whilst witnessing at the same time mounting demand. And so what these strikes do is, yes, there is an immediate impact on patients during the days of the strike. But it is a strike which is taking place fundamentally to keep the NHS alive. And I think it's really important to hear from patients who are able to articulate that from experience and who can say, yes, I'm really frightened. This is something which is impacting me. But ultimately, the government has been woefully negligent in its refusal to enter serious negotiations, its refusal to put an opening offer on the table, that it's pushed junior doctors to this point. Because what can you do when negotiations fail? The only choice that's left is to withdraw your labor. So that's why the right want to curtail the ability of doctors, nurses, and other healthcare staff to strike. It's not because really they care about patient safety, because if they did, they would go, look, do whatever it takes to get staffing up to safe levels. No, it's not about patient safety at all. It's about making sure that there is no consequence for failed governance and the refusal to participate in negotiations. Before our next story, let me tell you about something special we're going to do for you this week. To celebrate reaching 300,000 YouTube subscribers, which is a real milestone, we'll be hosting a special Q&A show with your regular hosts. So stick around tomorrow night, straight after Navarra Live, and we'll be answering your questions live. Next story. Manly Phillips is one of the most right-wing commentators in the British mainstream media. She's a columnist for the Times newspaper and regularly appears on the BBC. She's a social conservative, but is also incredibly controversial, not least because she was cited at length by the far-right mass murderer Anders Breivik before he killed 77 people in 2011. Now, I often don't pay much attention to what Phillips has to say. You've probably guessed why. But in a new column, she really lets the cats out of the bag, and I had to talk about it here tonight. The headline in The Times is as follows. Militant unions thrive in a weaker society. Extremism is increasing as economic and political objectives merge with the culture wars. Phillips starts by documenting something very real. As we've just spoken, the rising wave of industrial action in this country across a wave of professions, not just the NHS. But then it gets rather strange. Why is this all happening now? Why is everyone seemingly on strike? Mrs. Phillips thinks she has the explanation. The short answer is that the unions are taking advantage of a cultural and political vacuum that has been deepening for years. There has been a profound loss of trust in the entire constitutional order. To many people, if not most, politicians of all parties appear rudderless and unprincipled. The bonds of nation, inherited culture, and normative values that once held everyone together have been shattered. In his new book, Values, Voice, and Virtue, Professor Matthew Goodwin argues persuasively that politics is being driven by a new elite, composed of the professional, educated middle classes who wield immense economic, cultural, and political power. Committed to universal laws and institutions, they no longer believe elections matter much anymore. The rest of the public has been left effectively disenfranchised. This has led to the emergence of a ruthless, militant agenda among trade unions and other groups that have seized their chance. 
while the Labour Party has freed itself from its capture by the hard left under Jeremy Corbyn, militancy and power have flowed from mainstream politics into the trade unions and other groups, fueling the rise of street politics, which many now believe has greater legitimacy than representative democracy. Phillips goes on to list various baddies, the Occupy Movement, Black Lives Matter, Just Stop Oil, Extinction Rebellion, before really getting to the heart of her argument. There is a still more profound agenda driving this turmoil, economic and political objectives emerging with the culture wars. This is all too visible in the civil service, formerly crucial in keeping the show on the road regardless of the manifold inadequacies of elected politicians. Civil servants are fast becoming synonymous with incompetence, ideological brainwashing, and politicized obstruction. She's clearly never watched Yes Minster. This has nothing to do with inclusion and everything to do with destroying the normative values of society. Democratic governance is based upon mutual respect, shared goals, and civil liberties. Under the sanctimonious pretense of inclusion and empowerment, this is being replaced by coercion, threats, and bullying as political, cultural, and moral boundaries are smashed. It's Britain's post-democracy moment. Now, I think this is hugely revealing because it shows what the right actually has to offer when confronted with economic stagnation and permanently falling living standards. And that's to talk about drag artists, pronouns, and LGBT authors. Because for all their attacks on the left and its apparent obsession with the culture wars and identity politics, it's the right to amplify and feed off these debates precisely because they have nothing to say on wages, people getting poorer, the housing crisis, and rising bills. Which is how you get the bizarre spectacle of a columnist who is routinely on the BBC explaining strikes that involve millions by talking about people who use they, them pronouns while working at the civil service. Ash, it's a really instructive article, isn't it? Yeah, it absolutely is an instructive article. And I think it does give you some insight into where the right are right now. I mean, First, this is something which you see in the pages of The Times and The Telegraph and The Spectator an awful lot, which is you've got a set of journalists who really have had everything that they've ever wanted. They wanted Brexit, they got Brexit. They wanted year upon year of conservative government, they got year upon year of conservative government. They wanted an increasingly authoritarian right-wing populism, they got that too. And there aren't thou satisfied. So what do you blame it on? Hmm. Is the country a shithole? Because actually your ideas are the problem. You got everything you wanted and it was enacted in the vandalism that we've seen carried out by conservative governments since 2010. Or is the problem that people call you a dickhead on Twitter, right? They go, oh, it's the people call me a dickhead on Twitter. Now, in some ways, that is just your standard columnist narcissism. The universe revolves around me. So if someone's mean to me, that's actually a matter of national security. But I think what Melanie Phillips is doing here is going a step further. She is saying that the only form of democratic legitimacy is democratic majoritarianism. So our participation in society is limited to going to the ballot box once every four years. And whatever the result of that election is, we all have to abide by it in every single sphere of our lives. So if the Conservatives win a majority in 2019, that means everybody has to live by those norms and values. We're not just talking about legislation, 
and the right to pass legislation. We're talking about ownership of our souls. So we have to think of ourselves as perfect conservative robots who want nothing more than what Jacob Rees-Mogg says is good for us. Now, she calls that respect for representative democracy. I call that a kind of fascism, right? It is something which demands the total subordination of civil society to the result of an election, which is very skewed by first past the post, which is very, very skewed by the disenfranchisement of the young and the poor and people who are less able to participate in, you know, in standard elections. So I think that there is something really worrying about those articles and what it reveals about how the right really think of democracy. Because when they see that kind of active critical participation in public life, when they see people contesting norms and values and trying to think quite actively about, okay, well, how do we want to shape our culture? They go, this is oppression. This is bad and it has to be stamped out. And that's what the whole, you know, Matthew Goodwin, new elite bullshit is about, really. It's about curtailing the right of people who don't win elections, who don't uh, have a seat in the House of Commons from participating in politics. It's actually profoundly anti-democratic. Yeah, the new elite stuff is really interesting. I mean, we've invited Matthew Goodwin on to Downstream. I hope he does come on. He said he'll come on. I don't like to talk about these things before they've been recorded because you never know. But I think what that really speaks to, Ash, is the fact that, as you sort of said a moment ago, Britain is so screwed. We've had such little growth for 13 years, stagnant wages, public sector in crisis, public services disintegrating. You know, uh, there's also just a feel of cultural inertia, right, in a way that wasn't the case when I was younger. And I'm not just saying that because I'm old and now I don't know youth culture. There is, there is clearly a sense of cultural inertia, I think, you know, inevitably, which is an outgrowth of sort of economic flatlining. When you have that kind of effectively state failure, right, you're not making history anymore, it's not exciting, it's not dynamic, nobody wants to be the elite. Nobody wants to say, yep, we're the guys making the decisions now, right? Nobody wants to be that person because obviously it's failings, they have to point at somebody else. And you do end up in the bizarre situation where you have half a dozen columnists or, or people, liberal journalists, who are being pointed at as, you know, as if they were the chairperson of the IMF, the governor of the Bank of England, uh, you know, um, the, the head of the Crown Prosecution Service and the director general of the BBC. Like, no, it's it's Stephen Bush and Jonathan Portes. And I, I do find it rather strange, but I think it does speak to something much more important, which is nobody really wants to take ownership of how fucked Britain now is. Nobody. At the same time, I think, and this is where I maybe want to push back on this, Ash, I, I almost entirely agree with what you've said, but there is also a certain element of truth to the analysis, which is the elite has basically given liberals a little sort of spot of their own. Yeah, you know, you can mess around with a few parts of the culture, don't really change the fundamentals. Do you know what I mean? So you see this a lot with the Confederation of British Industry. We're doing a story about that later on. The CBI will say, you know, we, this is the Me Too movement. Me Too is hugely important, of course it is. By the way, they don't practice what they preach. More on that in a moment. Or, you know, BLM, we need to talk about race. But at the same time, they still have those massive issues still within their own organizations. And, and I feel like liberal Britain has given a certain amount of sort of space to, to, to have these conversations and these interventions. But as long as it doesn't change anything, that's the point, right? You can have those conversations, you have that space, you have that quote-unquote influence, as long as you're not influential. 
Um, and I think we've seen that firsthand here with Navarra Media. The minute you actually start to impact the conversation, well, people aren't so keen about you anymore. What are your thoughts on that? This is something which I think about an awful lot, which is I do think that media consumption culture takes up way more of our time than it did in decades past, right? We spend so much more time on our screens. We watch so much more television. We consume so much more. And it does feel powerful in that sense because of its sort of omnipresence, right? It's ubiquity. We carry around a little screen in our pockets and, you know, we open our phones like it's the morning paper every day just so we can see who's screaming at us on Twitter now. And so I think that this does take up a disproportionate amount of our time. But ultimately, you've got to ask yourself, okay, who's got more power? Is it the guy who does the commissioning for Netflix and commissions a new ensemble comedy where it's racially diverse, you've got trans characters, you've got disabled characters? Or is it the set of people that have determined the conditions which have meant that wages have gone like that and house prices have gone like that? Yeah. These are different kinds of power, right? Maybe it's a little bit like apples and oranges. Maybe it's a bit like apples and oranges where one is a regular sized apple and one is an orange which is crushing you to death. Next story. Last Thursday, we covered revelations at the Confederation of British Industry, the CBI. At the start of the week, the Guardian newspaper detailed how more than a dozen women claimed to have been victims of various forms of sexual misconduct by senior figures at the CBI, including one alleged uh, woman who was raped at a staff party. In March, Tony Danker, the CBI's Director General, stepped aside while an investigation could be carried out. Today, he's been dismissed with immediate effect. Financial Times reports. CBI Director General Toby Danker has been sacked with immediate effect following an investigation into allegations of sexual harassment. He will be replaced by Rain Newton-Smith, the UK lobby group's former chief economist, who will return as Director General after a brief spell as Managing Director for Policy at Barclays. The dismissal of Danker on Tuesday followed an investigation by law firm Fox Williams, which has rocked the business organization and spawned further allegations that do not relate to Danker. That is ongoing. Three other CBI employees have now been suspended pending further investigation into several allegations the CBI confirmed. The CBI said the allegations in recent weeks have been devastating for the organization and that Danker's conduct had fallen, quote, short of that expected of the director general. The report that led to Danker's sacking has not been published, quote, due to the legal confidentiality owed to all parties to the report. We cannot comment or share details of it, the CBI said. It was these two quotes in that same piece from ex-members of staff which were particularly interesting, though. Here's the first. A former female CBI staffer who'd previously raised a complaint over an inappropriate comment about her appearance by a senior CBI figure welcomed the appointment of the new director general. The board finally found its guts. Ray Newton-Smith will have the confidence of the staff and the members who know her to be on the right side of sexual misconduct issues, she said. And here's the second one. It has a very different take. Another former employee who raised concerns the organization's HR department over the treatment of junior staff by more senior managers was less convinced. She told the Financial Times, the hiring of Rain is pretty much a continuation of the old order, which is an interesting thing to do, British understatement there. She was sitting on the executive committee the entire time a lot of this stuff, i.e. these allegations, was going on. Two things here. 
You can't say you're undertaking a culture change when you replace the top person with someone who was around during their alleged wrongdoing. And it's also important to say that lots of these allegations, including that allegation of rape in 2019, predate Danka taking the helm in 2020. Secondly, and this is something I still don't quite understand, Newton Smith is a career economist. She's presently at Barclays, as that press release said. She's been there for around a month. Danka, meanwhile, was a new Labour policy guy and worked at The Guardian. These are people who claim to speak on the behalf of British businesses, yet have never started a business. It's like someone leading the British Medical Association, having never been a doctor. Just bizarre, but again, you know, there we are. Ash, do you trust the CBI to resolve all of this, or is it panic about far deeper problems that go beyond just one person? I absolutely don't trust the CBI to get a grip on it. And I think it's proved by just playing this game of musical chairs at the top, where you're swapping out one disgraced figure for someone else who is at the very least complicit in some of the mismanagement of the handling of complaints. And so that's not going to be something which builds up trust. That's not going to be something which reassures people that you're getting a grip on the internal culture of the CBI. Now, one of the things that this actually reminded me a bit of was in Succession, where you have as one of the plot lines, this horrific culture of um, misogyny, sexual harassment, sexual assault in you know one of the Waystar Royco departments, and actually, rather than having you know this kind of ride of the Valkyries moment where you know the female executives come in and clean up the shop, well, actually, those female executives behave in the same way as the male executives did, um, not in terms of being abusive, but in terms of thinking of their primary role as protecting the institution. And that, unfortunately, is something which you see in all kinds of workplaces. Um, it's something which I don't think is going to be unique to the CBI. But that tells us something about how harassment and wrongdoing ends up getting incubated at various organizations. Because it's not necessarily like this bacchanal of abuse where it's all going on in plain sight. What it is, is abuse taking place within a context where people are more concerned with smoothing over the allegations, maybe even treating the people who raised them as a problem rather than looking into it with any degree of seriousness. Is what happens when you institutionalize ass covering, basically. And what that can do is make things really unsafe for employees. Um, so yeah, I'm not I'm not confident that the CBI is getting a grip on this anytime soon. I don't know. What do you think, Aaron? Well, look, the CBI is an extraordinarily powerful institution. Um, I think it, it claims to cover, you know, I think 190,000 businesses. You're looking at about a quarter of the British workforce. So if this kind of thing can happen at the CBI, you've got people taking coke at staff parties, at official, allegedly taking cocaine, sorry, allegedly taking cocaine at official CBI dues. You've got somebody who was allegedly raped at a party on a boat on the Thames in 2019. Three people have been suspended. This is an organization at the apex of British business. What is that say about British business? Now, on the one hand, you can say, well, not a lot. It's completely atypical, anomaly, outlier, not representative at all. Why would you say that? What's the evidence for that? And I think this probably does get to the heart of actually quite sordid 
business cultures right across this country. And I'm not saying every business has these problems. Of course it doesn't. But I think when you have very powerful individuals in hierarchical organizations of any kind, it can be faith-based, it can be business, it can be politics. I think you can get some very sordid behavior. And I think for, for too long, frankly, you know, these kinds of organizations have had their ass kissed by political parties and the media just because they have that word business there. Um, and I, I find it frankly contemptuous that you see somebody like Jeremy Corbyn hounded out of public life, Labour Party members basically widely referred to as racists, and yet you have this party, which is the primary lobbyist of British business, carrying on like this, and and they think they can sort out with basically, it looks to me like this guy was thrown under a bus. He may be guilty of a great many things, but as I've already said, the allegation of rape precedes him even being there, right? And the person who's replaced him was already on the senior staff when all this was happening. It doesn't seem to me to be a particularly serious effort to address these problems, but you can absolutely rely on Navarro Media to stay on top of this kind of stuff in the CBI. Important to stay, you know, I don't often give them credit. This story was broken by The Guardian. Would it have been broken by The Times, The FT, The Telegraph? I wouldn't want to make any insinuations, but it's an interesting question. Next story. We've got a pretty bizarre story for you now, though it's an interesting one not least of all because it tells you a lot about a Home Secretary with a keen nose for headlines. To tell you the story, I'm going to have to use a word that you probably haven't heard in a long time, and it's one that may make many people queasy. They'll find it genuinely offensive, including myself, so be warned. That word is gollywog, but we think it's important to use it, and I'm going to leave it to Ash to explain why. The story begins at the White Hart Inn in Greys, Essex. Bennis Riley runs the pub where she displayed her collection of around 30 gollywogs in February. A member of the public complained to Essex Police about the collection, saying they'd found it distressing. And last week, officers from Essex Police entered the pub and seized the dolls, treating that complaint as an allegation of a hate crime. You can see them here bagging up the racist caricatures. No arrests were made, though Essex Police have said an investigation is ongoing. It wasn't the first time the authorities had tried to get rid of those dolls. In 2018, the local council asked her to take them down, but the landlord there refused and claims to have received even more of the dolls from supporters afterwards. Riley told The Independent this. My husband and I are not racist at all. We do Indian weddings. We have many cultures come into our pub and none of them would ever say we're rude to them or anything like that. We welcome them all. To me, we are all people and my husband feels the same as the gollies, they're dulls. So far, so local. But now enter Home Secretary Suella Breverman. Sky News spoke to a home or office source about the story and they said this. The Home Secretary's views have now been made very plain to Essex Police, so they're under no illusions. Police forces should not be getting involved in this kind of nonsense. It's about tackling antisocial behaviour, stopping violence against women and girls, attending burglaries and catching criminals, not seizing dolls. Braverman has been clear about how she wants the police to handle hate of various kinds, saying this just last month. I've been deeply concerned about reports of the police wrongly getting involved in lawful debate in this country. We have been clear that in recording so-called non-crime hate incidents, officers must always have freedom of expression at the forefront of their minds. That intervention generated a lot of favourable headlines for Braveman from the Tory press. There was this in the Daily Mail. 
Swala Bradman blasts police force for sending five officers to seize collection of gollywog dolls from family pub as home office source warns they, quote, shouldn't be involved in this nonsense. Then there was this in the Telegraph. If you want a swift police response, call them to arrest a toy. That's from Petronella Wyatt. But did the Home Secretary actually ever get involved in the case? Or was this just a canny move to increase the wedge effect of her war on, quote, wokery pokery? This is what Essex Police had to say. We're investigating an allegation of hate crime in Greys. The report was made to us on 24th of February and we visited a venue off Argent Street on 4th of April. We're aware of reports suggesting we have been contacted on this by the Home Secretary. This is not true. In the meantime, pub landlady Benice Riley has put her remaining gollywogs back on display. Her husband, Christopher, is due to be interviewed by the police when he returns from holiday next month. But Adam Biankov, political editor of Byline Times, he's done a little digging into Riley's Facebook history. And he found this. This is, as you can see, Riley's social media. And you can see a highlighted quote here. They used to hang them in Mississippi years ago. There was also this. Let's see how many posts this posted Lawrence Ashenden in 2020. It was reposted by Christopher Riley. White Lives Matter. And Riley posted this too. Sadiq's new ideas, and it's a gollywog on a plinth. I'm going to say why I think it's so important to say the entirety of this horrible word, gollywog, and not just shorten it to golly or gollies. And I'll tell you this by telling you a story. I used to work in a pub. Uh, Aaron used to come by there frequently. And I remember one day, this must have been about 2015, 2016, the landlady brought in a gollywog tea set and she said that she wanted to serve tea to the customers from this gollywog tea set and I obviously objected to it I said this is a racist caricature of black people and the word gollywog has been used to denigrate black and Asian people in this country for decades and she looked at me with this mixture of pity and disgust and she said uh, Ash, we don't actually use the term gollywog anymore. We call them gollies. So she wanted to serve tea in this gollywog tea set. And when I pointed out that it was racist and said, this is a gollywog, she was like, no, 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 you're actually the one being racist here. It's a golly. Now, that's why I think it's so important to say the entirety of this disgusting word. And I think it is different from something like the N-word, because Gollywog has been shortened to golly or gollies in order to allow people to participate in the delusion that these are cute children's toys and not a deeply racist uh, emblem of aggression. And they are an emblem of aggression. And I consider gollywogs to be part of the makeup of psychological terrorism that helps sustain white supremacy. Now, this was especially the case when gollywogs were widely used in advertising, because you're talking about a period of time where images of black and Asian people were images that were made to look ugly or disgusting or crudely comical. So you had adverts like the Pear Soap advert, where it depicted a black child being washed and then emerging white 
in order to create these connotations between dark skin and dirt. And the purpose of Gollywog dolls was to hammer home this point of you are grotesque, you are ugly, you are not as worthy of respect or dignity as white people. And this was all taking place in a context where you did not see positive images of black and Asian people, and in particular, positive images of black and Asian children. And so that's why in the 1960s, the 70s, and the 80s, you had so many black and Asian activists campaigning against gollywogs and also campaigning for more positive imagery of black and Asian children in children's books, for having that representation which you'd see on shows like uh, Sesame Street or um, you know, this wonderful era of children's books, uh, which had been uh, sold at the Walter Rodney bookshop by the Bogle Louverture Publishing House. This was all about having a kind of countervailing tendency to that kind of psychological warfare, which was socializing Black and Asian children to believe that they were ugly and they were disgusting. So these are emblems of what I believe to be psychological terrorism. And you can see that in the way in which this man, this pub landlord and his wife displayed them. That up in the pub, they're being hanged from shelves. And from his posts on Facebook, it's pretty clear that there's a bit of nudge, nudge, wink, wink going on, where it's sort of intended to resemble a lynching, but being done so in this kind of plausibly deniable way. They're not gollywogs, they're just gollies. They're cute. They remind us of our childhood. And what's disgusting about this story. What's most disgusting about it is that this should just be a local news story about one local racist. But what the Home Secretary has done by wading into the row and saying this is a waste of police time, by contextualizing it as free speech and open debate, is that it then gives cover and credence to a form of racism that a decade ago 15 years ago, would have just been dismissed as BNP thuggery. And that is something which I think is relatively new in our politics. I do think that things have gotten worse if you've got a home secretary defending the display of gollywogs. Whereas I actually think that 10 years ago, even a Tory home secretary would have found it quite easy to condemn that. And the fact it's a woman of color providing that kind of political cover, it signals a kind of um, veneer of respectability being given to a form of racism, which as a country we collectively agreed was something we all wanted to move past. It signals a deeply backward step. Final story. The IMF has released its latest forecast for growth this year. And it will come as a surprise to absolutely no one that the UK is set to be the worst performing major economy in the world. Unlike every other major economy except Germany, UK GDP is set to shrink this year. Germany is forecast to contract by about 0.1%, but every other economy, including Russia, is set to grow. Now, the IMF last year forecast that we shrink by 0.6% this year, so our gloomy prospects have been made slightly less gloomy. Still, Chancellor Jeremy Hunt likes to look on the bright side. In response to the forecast, he said this. 
our IMF growth forecasts have been upgraded by more than any other G7 country. The IMF now say we're on the right track for economic growth, even though we're in recession. By sticking to the plan, we will more than halve inflation this year, easing the pressure on everyone on track to economic growth when almost everyone else is actually achieving it. In slightly more upbeat news, the IMF has said we can look forward to, guess what, a whopping 1% of growth in 2024. Ash, there is a massive disconnect between how the politicians in this country communicate and the reality on the ground. People might say it's been ever thus, but when you have a chancellor talking about outstanding performances, you know, Britain outperforming, doing well, defying the odds, and Russia, which is subject to some of the greatest sanctions any country has ever experienced, is growing more than we are. Something very strange is happening, isn't it? I think that shows you just the scale and the severity of the economic self-harm which has been carried out by governments of this country. One is that we have consented to our own impoverishment with, you know, over a decade of austerity, which has decimated our public services and also absolutely hamstrung the spending power of millions of people in this country. In fact, it has been um, reported that austerity has meant that our, that our economy is 100 billion pounds smaller than it would have been had money been spent stimulating the economy instead. So that's one thing. The second thing is that we have shifted our economy over the course of 40 years away from being a productive economy towards being more of a consumptive and service-based economy. So quite a lot of uh, precarious, low-paid work and a smaller amount of very regionally concentrated, high-paying work. That's not a recipe for a strong economy across the whole country. And then I think the third thing which you've got to look at, and this is something which puts us out of step with comparable countries, is we decided to go for the most kamikaze possible Brexit on offer. Um, erect trade barriers between ourselves and our largest and closest trading partner and gone like whistling off into the sunset. Um, these are all things which aren't discussed with the kind of seriousness or rigor that they deserve on political media because we're so tuned in to the daily hurdy-gurdy, who's up, who's down in Westminster, that we end up missing the forest for the trees. And I think that it's something which is should make us worried that we consistently see these reports and how the UK, which is meant to be a rich country, is lagging behind comparable nations. And in fact, our economy is doing worse than Russia's, and they've been hit by a package of sanctions, which was intended to totally hobble their economy, and we're doing worse than them. Um, do you think that anyone in politics or political media is speaking about that in realistic terms with the seriousness it deserves? I think that the answer is no. So if you want to think about the sort of structures that go into making this kind of hellscape possibility, you know, yes, I think it's 40 years of the neoliberal consensus. Yes, it's nearly a decade of a half and a half of austerity. Yes, it's 
you know, a few years of Brexit now, but it's also consistently been the degradation of our public sphere. And that's something which is unfortunately led by this country's political media. Yeah, I feel like we need a populist, you know, Trump style to go, look, Russia's beating us people, Russia. <laughs> but if a bit of simplicity, it's true, a bit of simplicity. Instead, we've got people talking about LGBT authors and trans rights. Ash, thanks for joining me this evening. You've been fantastic. Thank you for having me. I should say that when you mention LGBT authors and trans rights, you mean is the transphobe saying that that's a major threat to public well, the media, life right? rather than being like, yeah, yeah, yeah. rather than being the media like, oh, these that. trans, yeah, these trans rights, they're the reason our economy is doing bad. Just a note of, of clarification before I've got to come over there into the studio and cancel you. Look, Aaron. I know I'm wearing glasses, but I'm not Melanie Phillips just yet. Okay. <laughs> Uh, and thanks everyone for watching this evening. Come back tomorrow night for another live stream from 6 p.m. For now, you've been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com/support.